The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife seize that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is uh, good for us. And Lord, we thank you that you send your spirit to help us understand your word. And so that's our request this morning. Holy Spirit, help us to understand this. Help us to apply this. And help us to see, God, how wonderful you are. Lord, we ask that you would glorify yourself in your word this morning. Father, I, I ask that uh, as I preach this morning, Lord, that it would be your words coming through. Lord, anything that is of me and not of you, I ask that that would be quickly forgotten. And anything that is of you, Lord, we ask that, that would go like concrete in our hearts and stay there. We, thought, we love you, Jesus. <clears throat> Amen. This passage, Ephesians 5, contains <clears throat> one of the longest single discourses on marriage in the Bible. We could easily spend a number of weeks looking at this passage uh, alone. In fact, when, we were, when I was looking at this, this, uh, doing this marriage series, uh, one thing I considered was just doing the entire series uh, just in these uh, few verses here. And so uh, we've gone, <clears throat> gone a different, bit of a different route, but ultimately it is a very thick, a very dense uh, passage. There's lots in here. And so you're going to find that we're going to move fairly briskly through this passage. Now, if you're here and you are not a Christian, <clears throat> you might be wondering why a book that was written thousands of years ago has anything relevant to say about marriage to us today. And why on earth would we pay attention to it? The answer to that question, as we talked about last week, is that if you, take, if you were to uh, take a look at the way that we as 21st century Westerners look at marriage, and if you were to trace the historical roots of marriage, of our cultural view of marriage, you would find that actually the way that we view marriage goes all the way back to the Judeo-Christian worldview. For example, if you went to a wedding yesterday, chances are that the father of the bride walked the bride down the aisle. Now, 
the father of the bride and the bride herself might not have realized this, but what they were doing was they were enacting Genesis 2, 22, which says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and pay attention to this, and brought her to the man. So when the father walks his daughter down the aisle, bringing her to a soon-to-be husband, he is enacting what God the father did with his first daughter. And that's just in weddings. That's just one example of the way that actually the way that we think about marriage today uh, has its roots in God's word. And so the reason why we want to study what the Bible has to say about marriage is because we see marriage in the first few pages of the Bible. It is really clearly something that God has instituted and inaugurated. He created it as an institution to be observed throughout the ages. And so therefore, what the Bible has to say about marriage is not only relevant to us, it's also profound and beautiful. In the same way that you should want to pay attention, we said this last week, in the same way that you should want to pay attention to uh, what your car manufacturer says about how to look after your car, we also should listen to what God has to say about marriage. If you are married, if you're planning on being married, if you're just looking for ways to support and encourage those who are in marriage, we should pay attention and we should listen to what God has to say about marriage. And, and again, as we said last week, uh, I know that in this room there is a, an array of different people with a different history of marriage. Some of us are single, some of us are married, some of us are divorced, some of us are remarried, some of us are widowed. We come from a range of different backgrounds. And so know this, we, we love you and we care for you. I don't want you to tune out in this if you believe that this isn't actually relevant for you. I think it's relevant for all of us. Uh, and, and there is, this, there is a, a, an untruth, a lie that has uh, pervaded our culture which says that there's something wrong with you if you're not married, that you're incomplete until you're married. And we reject that here at this church. We say, no, that's not true. Part of the reason why we know that is because the person who is writing this is single. Paul was single, and so <clears throat> we can understand this to be uh, something that we should understand and listen. Now, considering the cultural climate that we are currently in, this passage, you, we might think this passage is littered with landmines. Like maybe you got a little bit nervous as I was reading that, I going, okay, what's, what's he actually going to say here? Uh, I was preaching on this passage a few years ago when I was at LCC Northlex, and um, someone came up to me and said, hey, can you just leave verse 22 out? Like preach the rest of it, that's fine, just leave verse 22 out. I just don't want to hear verse 22. Many people have found this Versus passage really quite controversial. Uh, I believe that if you dig in, which is what we're going to do this morning, you're actually going to find something wonderful and something extraordinary, and there is some great fruit to be gleaned from God's word for both men and women. So I've named this sermon <clears throat> Painting Portraits. I don't always give names to sermons. Sometimes I do, and sometimes I just don't. But today I did, and it's called... Painting portraits. Because if you look at what Paul says in verse 32, he frames everything here that he says about marriage as actually being not about marriage, but about Jesus. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, 
marriage is more than just a union between husband and wife. It actually points to a different union, a more superior, an eternal union, the union between Christ and his church, between Christ and his people. In verse 31, Paul takes the earlier statement of marriage from God's word in Genesis 2.24 and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he's saying, actually, marriage is about Christ and the church. Marriage is meant to paint a portrait of Jesus' love and union with his bride, the church. You see, when you paint a portrait of someone, your aim is to imprint the likeness of that person onto your painting. So whether that is very clear and realistic or whether it's conceptual, the idea is that when someone looks at that portrait, they should be able to get a bit of an idea of who that is and, who, and what kind of person they are like. A portrait, like a painting, is not meant to make you think of itself. It is meant to make you think of the person in that portrait. And what the Bible teaches us is that marriage is not meant to point to itself. It is meant to point to Christ. To build, to have and to build a biblical marriage is the activity of painting a portrait of Jesus Christ, particularly emphasizing his love for the church and his union with her. And, and that's what Paul is trying to, get, to, trying to express here. He is teaching us how to paint this portrait. That's what this whole passage is about, painting portraits. In verse 21 then, Paul uses these, if we get into God's word now, verse 21, Paul uses these words, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now at first glance, uh, verse 21 looks like it actually belongs to the previous unit of teaching. In fact, if you're looking at it in your Bibles, you'll probably see that it's a part of the previous paragraph, and that's correct. That section there contains the finishing thought of instructions for proper and loving conduct within the church. But the reason why I've included verse 21 in our text is because this next section delves into the specifics of verse 21, looking at what this loving conduct looks like, firstly between husbands and wives, and then Paul goes on to talk about parents and children, and then servants and masters. So verse 21 kind of is like a hinge between these two sections. And so really it serves as the heading or the capital thought over everything that is taught here. Everything that Paul is about to say about marriage depends upon this principle of mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ should therefore be understood as an activity that is undertaken by both men and women in the church. Some people have understood the meaning of verse 22 to, uh, to 33 as being very one-sided, very much in favor of husbands to the detriment of wives, but you just can't hold that understanding if you know what verse 21 is really about. <clears throat> so with that heading in place, we can now turn to verses 22 to 30, the unique roles of men and women in marriage. Here's the thing that Ephesians 5 is, is teaching us. God made men and women differently. And those differences uniquely display the fullness of God's glory. And when those differences are elevated and honored in marriage, both the man and the woman flourish. If I can say that again, uh, God made men and women differently. 
Those differences uniquely display the fullness of God's glory. And when those differences are elevated and honoured in marriage, both the man and the woman flourish. That's what this is about, the flourishing of mankind. So, he says from verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, we have a bit of a problem with that word submit, don't we? Like in our, in our Western context, uh, we, we struggle with this, where individual autonomy is championed as one of the highest values. But I think it's even more difficult in Aussie culture, where we are pretty suspect of anybody with too much authority. Maybe we might find ourselves confused in the word authority with authoritarian. And so the idea of submission isn't exactly our favourite pastime. But when Paul talks about the wife submitting here, he's not suggesting that this is because she is somehow inferior or less than, nor does it give her husband the right to have authoritative control over his wife. In fact, Jesus Christ himself is the most wonderful example of submission. He submitted to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said twice in Matthew 26, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And then twice again said, Yet not as I will, but as you will, your will be done. Consider Jesus Christ, who was motivated by love and so did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is one of the things that I just found, find so wonderful and spectacular about Jesus. He's so humble. He, he's so disarming. He's so meek. As he hung on that cross, as those nails were being driven through his hands, he could have stopped it at any point. He had the power to call hundreds, thousands of angels to his side and pull them away from there. But he didn't. He, he subjected, he submitted his strength to the will of God. He submitted himself to the plan that he and his father, together with the Spirit, made since before time to seek and save the lost. That's the wonderful news of the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ did for us. He, he submitted his strength. He, he set aside his strength. The instruction to wives to submit to their husbands, it's not a directive to know their place. It's an exhortation to be like Jesus and to reflect his wonderful and profound humility in willingly submitting yourself to your husband. This is why Paul qualifies a wife's submission to her husband as being as to the Lord. It's part of her service to Christ. Now, something that is often overlooked, but it's incredibly important, is that this instruction to wives in verse 22 is exactly that. It's an instruction to wives. It's not an instruction to husbands. Paul doesn't say, husbands, ensure that your wives are submissive. There is nothing for husbands to obey or put into practice in verse 22. I say this because of how often this verse becomes abused and men who don't do the hard words of exegesis take it upon themselves to ensure that their wives are obeying. Wives, 
22 is for you. Verse 22 is for you. Husbands, verse 22 is not. It's for your wife. Part of the reason why Ephesians 5 has these landmines is because there have been many people who have who've used it to commit atrocious acts in the name of obeying Scripture. There have been men who have taken this as permission to subjugate their wives and treat them as second-class citizens in God's kingdom. That is a blatant misuse and misunderstanding of the text. If that's your application of the text, then you're either purposely using the text for your own gain or you're being sloppy with your exegesis. Men and women are unequivocally equal in dignity, in value and worth. Both men and women are equally image bearers and both have equal access to the grace of God. This isn't about ability. This isn't about value. It's about God's design. Husbands, if you are diligent with the text, the only thing that you can subject your wife to from Ephesians 5 is honor and esteem and value and love. We'll get to the husbands in just a few moments. Now, we might ask at this point, why the wife is called to submit to her husband? Paul answers that question in verse 23, saying, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. So the way that God has designed marriage is for the husband to take the role of headship in the home. He is the one who is called to lead in the marriage. And wives are called to accept their husband's fulfillment of that role. What does it mean, though? What, what, what kind of head is he meant to be? What kind of leader is the husband? Well, Paul qualifies that by talking about what headship means. In the same way that Christ is the head of the church and is the saviour of the church, how is Christ the church's saviour? He saved the church by dying for the church. That's how Christ saved his people. That's, he, he took their place on the cross. Therefore, male leadership in marriage is fir- first and foremost necessitates servant leadership. We might think it's politically incorrect to talk about marriage this way, but so far what Paul is saying is that wives ought to be like Christ in showing submission to their husbands who, like Christ, are called to lead their wives by laying down their lives for them in servant leadership. God made men and women differently. Those differences uniquely display the fullness of God's glory. And when those differences are elevated and honored in marriage, both the man and the woman flourish. Turning now to husbands, in verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, when we compare the command for wives uh, with the command for husbands, it sounds like a bit of a cop-out, right? Like wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, all you've got to do is love your wives. That's fine. That's pretty easy. It's pretty low ball for the, for, the, for the guys. If you keep reading, though, you will see that this actually isn't the case. In the same way that male leadership in verse 23 is immediately qualified as being servant leadership, so too this love is immediately characterized by Christ's love for the church and giving himself up for her. This means to love like Christ means to die. Jesus talks about this himself in John 15, 13. He said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then, the very next day, Jesus laid down his life for his friends. He died. If husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church, this is what it entails. Now, the way we should understand this verse in John is that the husband's role is more complex than just being willing to die. 
We've spoken about this before, but the language that Jesus uses here uh, indicates not just a willingness to die, but a willingness to live, a willingness to lay down who you are, your personhood. This is the kind of love that husbands are meant to emulate. To give up yourself means to give up your personhood, to set aside your own life, your dreams, your agenda, who you really are for her sake. Here's the thing. If you, you can say, I'm willing to die for you, but if you're not willing to live for your wife, then that doesn't mean that much. Like, honey, I would take a bullet for you, but I'm sleeping in this morning. Honey, I would drink poison for you, but I'm, I'm, it, Saturdays are for the boys. Sweetie, I would jump in front of a bus for you, but I'm not spending time with my in-laws. That's not love. The way that Jesus calls us to love one another is to lay down who we are. This is how God has called men to paint the portrait. Wives are called to paint the portrait by submitting to their husband's servant leadership. This portrays Christ as the one who died for the salvation of sinners. Husbands are called to paint the portrait by laying down their lives for their wives. And this portrays Christ, the servant who sanctifies the church. This is what husbands are called to do. It's, it's all about sanctification here. Before it was about salvation with the wives, now it's about sanctification. This is what verses 27 to 28 means. Paul says that Christ gave himself for the church for a threefold purpose. One, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Two, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. And three, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is all about sanctification. Now, if you don't know much about sanctification, sanctification is that when we put our faith in Christ, we begin the lifelong journey of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. It's done by his gospel. We've got to remember the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves for that to happen. There will come a time, however, when that sanctification will be complete. And we're going to step into the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to have new bodies And those bodies are going to be perfect and wonderful and renewed and fresh and new. And they're going to be kind of like, they're going to be like us. It's going to be us, but a better version of ourselves. Like you'll see me in heaven, you'll be like, I'm pretty sure that's Jimmy, but that guy's got a full head of hair. Pretty sure that's Jimmy, but he's looking pretty buff now. Like, has he been, oh, that is Jimmy. And that's how it's going to be. Like, that's what the new heaven, that's what the new bodies are. We're going to, new teeth. Like I say this often, and some people are like, wow, praise the Lord, amen, yeah, new teeth. Others of you are like, I've got perfect teeth, I don't know what that means. We get new bodies, it's wonderful, no more pain, no more arthritis, no more groaning as we bend down and pick up our shoes off the floor. That's what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like. We're going to be given these new bodies, dazzling, perfect, wonderful. That's, that's, that's the trajectory of our sanctification. Thinking and meditating on the new heavens and the new earth is just one of the healthier things that a healthy Christian should be doing. Because we look forward to the day that we'll be with Christ and we'll be made perfect in every way. We, we spend so much time and money trying to make our bodies perfect, right? Going to the gym, buying clothes that'll hide that particular blemish, spending money on makeup just to hide those things, trying to present to our, ourselves to the rest of the world as dazzling and beautiful creatures. That's because we have this longing for the new heavens and the new earth. That's exactly what's going to happen on the new heavens and the new earth. And guess what, ladies? Paul is saying that the role of the husband is to help his wife get ready for that. Now, I'm tempted to go into some pretty terrible uh, stereotypes with men and women, and, and, but I'm not going to do that. So I'm just letting you know that I took that out of my sermon. But it means that 
husbands, we get to play a part in our wives' sanctification. The late professor James Boyce reflects on this, and he says, I suggest that any husband would be a better husband if, if he could see his wife as on the way to becoming that dazzling creature, which she will surely be in heaven in her resurrected body. And if he could realize that under God, he has a responsible part in her transformation. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that absolutely wonderful? When husband, we as husbands are called to give ourselves up for our wives, it's not just because that's the nice and the sweet thing to do. The goal here is her sanctification. Husbands, we have a role to play, a part to play in our wives' sanctification. That is a wonderful privilege. If we're married, we should want our wives to be more and more like Jesus because that's exactly what Jesus wants for her too. And that's exactly what he's doing in her. We should want her to grow in her faith and mature in her faith. You see, some people, some Christians think that Ephesians 5 is a bit of a blight on the reputation of Christianity and it should be camouflaged and covered up. What a crock. This is fantastic. This is wonderful. Headship doesn't mean that the husband is the boss and she's his secretary. Headship means that he is leading her together in their sanctification. That's what this is about. All right, so what does that actually mean? What does it look like for the husband to do this? It means that the husband is responsible for the spiritual climate of the marriage. He is the one who is responsible for creating a greater God consciousness in the household. And this is our wonderful privilege. And there is nothing more important than doing this. Doing this should take precedence over every career, over every hobby, every sport, every friendship, and everything else that we've got going on. This nurturing role should be more important to us than careers or deadlines or making money or watching sports or reading books or spending time with our buddies. Wives, why wouldn't you want to submit to that? Can you see that the way that God wants each of us to paint this portrait of marriage is just simply so much better than anything else the world could ever plan or achieve? The biblical vision of marriage is so much better than the bland and boring and unremarkable and uninspirational version of marriage that we get everywhere else. Now, we might ask at this stage, okay, well, we've heard that the husband's role is, uh, the husband is responsible for the sanctification. There, he's playing a part in that. What, is, what role does the wife have in the husband's sanctification? Well, we've already said her unique role is to submit to that headship. Respect him. Wives, you should do what you can to make leading easy for your husbands. Respect him, follow him, listen to him, encourage him. Join him in Bible reading. Join him in prayer. If he's stepping out in faith, stay at his side and hold his hand and tell him that you love him and that you're by his side no matter what and that you're grateful for his leadership and then watch what he can do. Husbands, if you want to see your wife flourish, give up your life for her sanctification. Lay down your life and do what you can so that she can become more and more like Jesus and watch her flourish and bloom like a flower in spring. Wives, if you want your man to grow in godly strength and confidence, respect him, let him lead, stay by his side and assure him that you're not going anywhere and that you trust him and you'll see him become more and more like Jesus. Here's the thing. The complete picture of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives is that he both saves and sanctifies us. 
And that picture is complete unless you is incomplete unless you both have both of those things. And Paul is saying, paint the whole picture. When he talks to wives, Paul is saying that Jesus is the saviour of the church. When he talks to husbands, Paul is saying that Jesus sanctifies the church. And so to paint that picture of Christ saving and sanctifying his saving and sanctifying his people, both the husband and the wife need to be painting their part. So Let's pause now for a moment and ask the question, what does that actually look like practically? Like, going home this week, what does that actually look like? Well, these are some big general principles, and the closer that you get to each marriage relationship, you're going to find it's going to be different uh, from marriage to marriage, partly because of the personalities and the lifestyles of each person. But just to help you see some big categories, this is potentially three ways it could play out. Well, these are three categories it should play out. Firstly, first category... Contrary to what people, some people might believe, it doesn't mean that the husband is the one who makes all of the decisions about everything. Sometimes people do flatten this out and assume that it basically means that the husband makes all the decisions and the wife just goes along with that. That's not what this is saying. It does, however, mean that the husband is answerable for the decisions that are made. Now, you might ask, okay, where from the text are we getting this idea that the husband is answerable and responsible before God for this spiritual climate, for actually making these decisions? Well, just in a few moments, Paul is going to quote Genesis 2.24, saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. One flesh. <clears throat> now, we're going to get into the content of that in just a, in just a few moments. <clears throat> But if you go back to Genesis and look at what happened with that first marriage, we know that the serpent, serpent comes along and tempts Eve to eat the fruit, and she gave some to Adam, her husband. Eve definitely was the first person to take that fruit and eat it. But when God comes to find them, God doesn't go to Eve for an explanation. He goes to Adam. And it's not, he doesn't go to Adam for an explanation of what Eve has done. He goes to Adam for an explanation of what Adam has done. So if you read that section, you'll see that God actually asks them four questions. The first three are pointed, directions, uh, pointed questions directed straight towards Adam. The fourth one is towards Eve. So that's the first category. That's where we have responsibility for that. Secondly, male headship also means that the husband is ensuring that he and his wife are both growing in their faith through God's word and prayer. This doesn't mean that the wife can't grow without the husband there by her side the entire time. It just means that he is the one who is responsible for making that happen and initiating that. It means that when it comes to being in God's word devotionally and coming to God in prayer, if it's not happening, guys, we're the ones who lead our wives that way. And that's going to mean sacrifice. It means the sacrifice of time. We need to set aside time in our lives to make this happen, which means that you might have to give up something that you, know, that you love doing. It's going to mean sacrificing money, Set aside, setting aside some money for this, like going and buying a couple's devotional, going to Kurong and going, okay, what, what, how can I be, what resources can I use to help us grow in this? And buy a good devotional. And just to give you a hint, if, you've got a devo- if you're looking at in Kurong and you're looking for a devotional and the, pic- the, the, uh, the picture of the author is on the front cover, don't buy that devotional. Because <laughs> for that, that author, they're more important than the content of that book. You have to set aside some pride. If you aren't doing this, then it could be really awkward to start doing this, especially after a number of years of marriage. If I can be really honest, this is, this is me. For the first maybe nine years of our marriage, I did not lead Kirsty in this. I didn't take responsibility for this. 
And the longer it got, the, the harder it was to actually broach that subject with her. And it actually got to the point where I had to set aside pride and say to Kirsty, hey, babe, I'm sorry for not leading us in the way that I should have been doing it. I repented that. And I want things to change. I don't want us to continue going on without me helping us open our Bibles together in the, in, uh, in the mornings and praying together. So would you join me tomorrow in reading our Bibles together? The third category, and let me just say this about that. I was on a men's camp this past uh, few days talking about men's stuff um, and issued this challenge for those guys. And yesterday afternoon, we stood around the bonfire talking about, okay, what are we going to take home? And someone asked, hey, who else is going to go home and, and have this conversation with their wife? And like five or six hands went up. And I was so encouraged that there are husbands who are going home to wives to actually take the lead on that. This also means that the husband, I believe, has a headship card that he can play wherever there is a disagreement and the wife needs to listen to her husband and submit to that and he should give himself up for her. This means that whatever the decision is, the person who should benefit the most from that decision should be a wife. Uh, I've only had to play that card a couple of times in our marriage and it's normally been, no honey, I'm the, I'm the head of this home, you're the one who's going to go to bed and I'm going to stay up with a screaming, teething baby. That's how we do it. We, we lay down our lives for our wives. So coming back to our text, what is the meaning of verse 31? When, Gen- when Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24, when, when Paul quotes that, what he's saying is that this has been God's design for marriage from the start. Some people want to suggest that when Paul talks about male headship and wives submitting to their husbands, that's something that we can completely disregard since it was a cultural thing of Paul's time and it's just the context of the day. But that can't be. Because Paul was just as far away chronologically from Genesis, if not more, than we are from him. There's a good chance that we are actually closer to Paul chronologically than Paul was to when Genesis was written. So quoting Genesis 2.24, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Before we get married, our relationship with our parents is probably the deepest and most profound relationship that we have. Leaving father and mother then means that in marriage, your husband or your wife now becomes your greatest priority. More important than your career or money or house or kids or anything else. He says, and hold fast to his wife. We looked at this last week. To hold fast is very, very strong language. It's covenantal language, and it means that you're making a covenant to stick with each other and adhere to each other no matter what. So much of our world wants to make romantic unions about how the other person makes us feel, but in biblical marriage, that takes us deeper than feelings and propels us into the realm of covenant, which says, I'm sticking with you no matter how I feel. He then finishes the quote and says, And the two shall become one flesh. Again, we looked at this last week. But to become one flesh means that you're giving another person access to every part of yourself, the good and the bad, in the same kind of way that we have access to ourselves. It's like your life is a house, and when you get married, you are taking that person through your house, and you're unlocking every door and every cupboard and allowing them to see inside. This makes us completely vulnerable, which means we have to trust one another And when you trust your partner with that vulnerability, it opens the door to unmatched intimacy. I I don't know about you, but the biblical vision 
of what marriage is is just so much better than anything else I've ever come across in my entire life. I've watched a lot of rom-coms. I love romantic comedies. They're, they're my gem. I love them more than Kirstie does. This is so much better. This is so much better. We'll finish with verse 32 where we started. Paul says, this mystery is profound. That's an understatement, right? <laughs> it's a profound mystery. There's something about marriage that is far more mystical and eternal than the union that we have with, husbands, with our husbands or wives. And that is the union that Christ has with us. That's the eternal union that points to. This is the great mystery. And he says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, maybe I haven't done a very great job today of showing you why God's idea and vision for marriage is better than anything else this world could come up with. And if that's the case, you might still be asking the question, but why? Why this? Why that way? Let me try one last time to answer that question from where we started in verse 32. The answer is because this is what our almighty God has asked of us. Imagine that Jesus comes to you and says, I'd like for you to paint a portrait of me and how much I love my bride. And as you do it, I want you to use these colors. We might then say in reply, why those colors, Lord? Surely some other colors. And we must imagine Christ beaming with his eternal grin and saying, I want you to use these colors. Because when you use these colors, you're going to paint something extraordinary and beautiful. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.